Remain standing and open your Bibles, please. To 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll pick it up in verse 4. <clears throat> Read our way down to verse 12. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children that you would have a walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now, Lord, that you administer that word to our hearts. We've heard it with our ears. Now help us to apply it to our lives. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your graces, graciousness to us, Lord, and ask for your blessing upon this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So you remember as we had started out the book uh, a couple of weeks ago, that one of the things that we did was highlight the purpose, the reasons for Paul's writing to them. And this chapter continues right along with that. Um, and that is that he was writing them to commend them, to comfort them, and to correct them. Even though Paul had been with them a short time, he had instructed them about the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, salvation, sanctification, assurance, about election, the resurrection, about Christian behavior, and the rapture of the church, and the coming day of the Lord, and the second coming of Christ. And they learned all that in, in more or less in a month. They had received the gospel in much affliction. You remember that's what he had reminded them of there in chapter one. And they had uh, persevered and so much so that their life became a testimony to the areas surrounding them. People saw them that they had turned from idols and turned to the true and living God. And they were examples to others in Macedonia. And Paul here in this chapter, uh, we're going to see is he's going to actually defend his actions um, concerning what others were accusing him of that he had not done these things. And we'll see in this, in this uh, short portion of this chapter, how Paul will defend himself as to what he was doing, uh, what he was not doing and what he was doing. 
And in that, I think there are great lessons for us. As Paul is in encouraging them to remember that God had chosen them, that God wanted to use them, and that there were things about their lives that needed to change, just as Paul was an example of what it was that you should not do and what you should do as a servant of God. And it's an exhortation, of course, to us today. It's interesting as we look at this particular book in the time period in which Paul was there in Thessalonica and ministering and the tremendous number of cults and religions and other things that were there in Thessalonica and how Paul was having to deal with I think in many ways a lot of the same things that we deal with today in our culture and our society. I'm going to give you a quote here in a little bit uh, by Morris who said that that no other, no other time in history was, has there been so many active cults and false teachers, you know, within a culture. But uh, Morris died a few years back. He didn't live when we're living today. And I think we've per pretty much paralleled or equaled what was going on there in Thessalonica. We start off here in chapter 2 and verse 1 where it says, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. So this section begins uh, where Paul defended his own character and ministry before the Thessalonians. And that's because there were others who were coming in and they were making accusations about them, their, what, they, what their motives were, what their actions were, and what their motives were. And so Paul is, he's referring them back to when he says here, he says, for you know yourse you yourselves know. In other words, he's appealing to their own experience with him. They walked with him in a short period of time indeed. And this was part of the criticism of Paul's critics is that he didn't really care about them. He only stayed there a short time and then he left, which was very common for some of the false teachers that were going around. They would come in, they would bilk the people out of everything that they could, and then they would move on. And so they were trying to throw Paul into that same kind of light. They're saying, you know, it's because of the fact that Paul really doesn't care for you. This is why he's doing what he did. And Paul says, no, you know for yourselves. You, you were there. You, I ministered to you. I talked with you. I showed you. And so he refers, back, refers them back to their own experience with him as to whether or not they could judge as to whether or not those accusations were true. He says there, and also he says, brethren that are coming to you was not in vain. And Paul, in chapter 1, we had seen that he makes a remark uh, as to the changes in their lives. That when Paul came and he gave them the gospel, they embraced Christ as their savior. And immediately they began to change. They turned away from idols and they turned to God, to the true and living God. So Paul is telling them, he says, look, he says, we came. We did what we needed to do to share the gospel. And the reason why, of course, that Paul left was because basically they were driven out of town uh, by others who... Uh, other Judaizers, or Jews actually, that didn't want that gospel going out. And so they were driven out of town. They had to leave. And Paul didn't leave because he didn't care about them, but indeed he did. And that, that, that coming to them was not in vain because the fruit was in their life. 
Paul had not wasted time by coming there and giving them the gospel. I don't know about you, but you know, there have been times in, in my, my walk with the Lord and in ministry that pouring a lot of time and a lot of effort into someone to share with them the hope of the word of God, the hope of the gospel, the need that they have in their own life, only to have them just turn away from it and want nothing at all to do with it. And really feeling at that time that I, I just wasted a lot of my time. A time that I could have been putting into someone who did want to know those things. And so it's one of those things as a Christian, we find ourselves in that kind of circumstance. Often as we're sharing with someone and they just really don't want to hear it. But yet we have an obligation to give to them the truth that God has given to us. That's one of the things that I want to point out this morning is that God has chosen us just like God had chosen them. And that the time that we invest into people is never in vain, even though I may feel like it. There are times that I have, but yet I always fall back on this. I fall back on the parable of the sower where it talks about the man who goes out and he casts the seed. And as he throws out the seed, the uh, the parable is about a field and it has differing soils in that field. There is that section of the field where it's very, very fertile, plowed up really well. The seed goes in and it takes root and it produces fruit. But then there are other soils that are given and that's the soil of the rocky soil. And that's where the seed goes out and it hits and it just bounces off. It doesn't do any good whatsoever. Then there's the other soil that, that has a thin layer of soil that's kind of soft. The seed goes in, it begins to take root, but then when the heat of the day comes and uh, burns on the, on the plants, they just wither away and die. And of course, it's speaking of different hearts and the preparation of the Holy Spirit working in the heart of people, making the soil tender making it so that when the seed goes in, that it produces fruit. And then others that when, it, when they hear the gospel, it just bounces off them like a rock. And then there are others that receive it with joy and they spring up real quick. But then as soon as the trials and the tribulations come and they do, and they will after receiving Christ, they can't take the pressure and they turn away. Paul had written this letter in response to sending Timothy to them because he was afraid of all the trials and tribulations they were going through, that they were going to be that kind of soil, that kind of soil that received it quickly. Remember, we talked about the fact three to four weeks that Paul had been there and there was some great things that were going on. But Paul was concerned that when the trials came of persecution, that they would actually turn away from that. Turn away from the truth of God and his word. Paul's delighted when he finds out that these, that the soil has been rich and fertile and it has taken root and it's, it's bearing fruit. And so Paul is encouraging them as he's talking to them about this. And as I said earlier, you know, he's reminding them of, of what they had done and how God had chosen them and how God is using them, just as it is that God does with us. And when we are used of God to pre present the gospel to others, 
Our job is not to figure out what soil we're casting the seed on. Our job is to cast the seed. And if you're breathing here today, and I trust you all are, then you all have that same responsibility, and that is that you are called to be those that cast the seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world in which we live in today. There's no exception. There's no excuse, right? And I can tell you, there are people that encourage me tremendously. We have a sister right now that's watching this service who can't get out of bed. She recently has found Christ in a very real and powerful way. And I got to tell you, in that condition that she is in, it does not hinder her from reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pity the poor caretaker that comes into her because she's going to tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ. The author of this epistle, Paul, who at one time when he was in Rome in prison, took the opportunity to share the gospel with the guards that were chained to him, which there would be two, there would be four different guards per day that would be chained to him. They changed shifts, 12 hour shifts. And as they would change out, I'm sure Paul would take advantage of that and he would share the gospel again. We know that it had fruit, he said, because there were some in the palace, in the palace guard, who had come to faith in Christ. The gospel was going out, even though Paul was chained, the gospel was not. So it is too in our lives. There is no chains to us presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only those that we allow to hinder us to do so. And I mean, there's, there's plenty of those things that hinder us. Fear is probably the greatest. We're afraid to share the gospel and the way that our culture has become so, you know, antagonistic towards the gospel, then there's a little voice over here that says, you know, they really don't want to hear it anyways. So don't share it. Don't tell them. And then there's that, well, if I do, they may get angry with me, upset with me. They may hate me. We feel that way about strangers. Just think what we think about our friends. These are things that, that are self-hindrances to us sharing the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But just as it was that these people had received that gospel, and Paul's going to tell us how he nurtured them, how he ministered to them, and, and how their, their job now is to take that gospel out to others. Now, they have been doing that. They have been doing that. Remember last week, uh, yeah, it was last week, when we talked about the fact that the word had got out in all of Macedonia and Achaia of what had happened in their lives. That's, they're, they're standing strong, they're speaking up, and they're telling others about Jesus Christ, and it had gone out as a witness to others. Remember that whenever we do, whenever we cast that seed, that is never in vain because God never sends his word out and that it returns void to him. But it accomplishes what he sends it out to do. Now, what we have to understand is that doesn't mean that every person that hears the word of God is going to get saved. Or not. For some, I'm afraid that what it becomes is their, it becomes their, their, their condemnation. 
Because when you have knowledge about the truth and you reject the truth, you're more accountable to God than for those that never hear the, hear the truth and reject the truth. So sometimes God uses it for that purpose. But oftentimes God uses it to turn a person's heart and their life around toward the gospel. Think of your own life. I don't, I don't know each one of you as your salvation experience, but I can, I can say that it's probably a pretty safe bet that the first time that you heard the gospel, you did not accept Christ as your savior. That the first time you heard the gospel, that that was the time when the seed was planted in your heart. I know it definitely was in my life. And from the time that I accept, from the time that I heard the gospel, which the closest I can figure, I was between three and four years old when I heard the gospel. And I remember hearing it and understanding as much as I could at that age about the fact that God loved me and that he died for me. But it took 20 years almost, actually about 18, 19 years, before that seed ever produced the fruit. And the point is, for most of us, there, there is that, that point of where we hear, receive the seed, and then we accept Christ as our Savior. And so we should not think it different than for others out in the world. And we should never give up and always wanting to give that hope of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, it says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's the promise of God. So when we step out in faith, we trust the Lord, and we begin to tell others about Jesus Christ and their need for a Savior, that God is going to work, even when we cannot see it. So many times, the Lord's Holy Spirit is working and we think nothing's going on because we judge things on an outward appearance when the matters are really a matter of the heart and the spirit of the individual. Sometimes we can, sometimes we can see it. We can see God's Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes you can see when you're telling somebody the truth about their sin, that they need a savior and that Christ had died for them so that they can have forgiveness of sin. You can see the anguish on their faces. They're wrestling with that because they know it's the truth and they're trying to figure out in their head and in their heart how they can not accept that because it is the truth. And then there's other times you can see that the Lord is working in their heart and, and they're hungering they're wanting that very thing. And so we respond by giving them that love and the word. But understand, sometimes it may be that you see nothing. But trust the Lord is working because of his promises that nothing we do for the Lord is done in vain. Verse 2. But even after we had suffered, before we were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. So Paul reminds the Thessalonians of his suffering in ministry. As a matter of fact, um, when Paul showed up here at Thessalonica, uh, he more than likely still had uh, 
active wounds on his back from the beating that he had taken in Philippi. But it didn't stop him. Matter of fact, it didn't even slow him down. He left there, went right on down to Thessalonica, began to share the gospel, even though he had been mistreated for sharing the gospel, gospel there in Philippi. And through this, he made the point that he would not carry on in the face uh, of the beatings and conflict if it were in only in a, of himself. In other words, as he's trying to tell them, look, I, my motives are pure, my desire is right, and I wouldn't have carried on through those beatings if indeed I did not have a pure motive. And when Paul arrived there, like I said, the wounds on his back would have still been open. And uh, because of that, uh, it was a good demonstration of his sincerity of truth. He said, Paul had said, we are, were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. So despite what some of Paul's accusers said, he did not only preach the gospel when it was easy or convenient, he knew what it was like to speak boldly for the Lord, even in the midst of much conflict. So now here in verses three through six, one of the things, uh, some of the things we're going to see is Paul's declaration of what they were not because obviously there were those that were making false accusations against him. So Paul is going to tell them exactly what they were not as others had said they were. In verse three, he says, for our excitation did not come from error or from uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. So Paul's actions, which they had personally observed, demonstrated both his sincerity and his motives, which they could not observe, but which Paul will explain here to them. He says, for our exhortation did not come from error. And that means um, that it didn't come from delusion or false judgment or opinion or uncleanness, he says here. And that is the insatiable greed for riches, inordinate, um, miserly desire to gain and to hoard wealth. Paul says those were not our motives. And the purity of Paul's message made it apparent that there was no deceit, no fraud, no guile. It's interesting, uh, the Bible that I have here, uh, up here, is a New King James Version. And um, where in the scripture that I have in front of me on my app or on my iPad, it says deceit, but that particular version of the New King James translates it guile. The word means either one, deceit or guile. And there was neither in Paul's uh, ministry, uncleanness or guile in his ministry at all. Uh, in the first century world Paul lived in, uh, there were many competing religions and many ministers of those religions uh, were motivated by greed and gain. Um, there's a, I have a whole list of the various uh, religions that were going on there. You had all the Greek, the Romans, uh, and some Egyptian uh, gods that they had there in Thessalonica. And with all of those, they all had their evangelist. They had those that were going around the city, you know, preaching, hawking their wares, if you will. 
And the big difference was is that they would take and they would get people and they'd get everything they could from them and then they'd just simply move on to the next town. So this is exactly what critics, uh, Paul's critics were saying that he was. That he came in and that all he wanted was what they had, all he wanted was their money, all he wanted was to lead them off for himself and then once that was done, that he just left. And he left very quickly because of being persecuted, uh, driven out of town, if you will. And so they tried to use that against him. But Paul is telling them, no, that's not true. That is not why we left. We didn't come with you with deceit or guile or, or, you know, of any way trying to get what we can from you, but simply to give to you. And Morris said, he said, there has probably never been such a variety of religious cults and philosophic systems as in Paul's day. Holy men of all creeds and countries, popular philosophers, magicians, astrologers, crackpots and cranks, the sincere and the spurious, uh, the righteous and the rogue, swindlers and saints, jostled and clamored for the attention of the believing and the skeptical. So that explains the times in which Paul was there in Thessalonica. And like I said, he says, there's probably never been such a variety of religious cults and philosophic systems in, as it was in Paul's day. I would disagree. I think there's plenty to go around today. There's a lot, and, and unfortunately, there's a lot that are under the guise, under the umbrella of Christianity as well. False prophets, false teachers. Men who desire, they don't come because they want to be a blessing to someone they want to take from others. As a matter of fact, there are still ministries that survive off of gullible people who sit at home and watch TV and they're told, you know what, if you will just send us $10, I'll send you this wonderful little hanky. And if you will pray on this and just put it on your forehead, God's going to heal you. He's going to give you money. He's going to give you this. He's going to give you that. They're still out there. And people are still falling for it. That's why they're still there. They're still buying into it. People that are still buying into it. It's an unfortunate thing. Because it makes it difficult. And this is what Paul was faced with. Paul was the genuine deal. He was the genuine article. He came because he had the truth of God and his word. And he wanted nothing from no one. We're going to see here in a little bit that Paul says, hey, look. Uh, we labored night and day so that we took nothing from you, even though we could, as apostles, we could have taken. We were deserving of that support from you. But because of what was going on there, we chose not to, because we did not want any hindrance to the gospel. More people could say, see, he just wanted your money. Well, when somebody would say that about Paul, then they could turn around and say, see, you're wrong. He never took our money. So what do you got to say about that? Well, they had other things that they would like to accuse him of in order to disqualify his witness and to prove him to be wrong. But Paul is going to tell us that, uh, that the things that happened to him were by God's design and that that they are not a proof text that he wasn't from the Lord, but he was indeed from the Lord. And all these things that people said about him, the bad things, were wrong. But here in verse 4, 
Paul says this, he says, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. This is a powerful little verse, a tremendous verse. He says that we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Paul, Paul says that that there, there is something about, something special about being entrusted with the gospel. And just so you know, every one of us are special. If you know Christ, he's entrusted the gospel to you, to your care as well. And Paul says that, that God has entrusted him and, and those that were with him with the gospel of Christ and that uh, that they had been approved by God to be entrusted with it. Even so, we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. So Paul says that they've been entrusted, and it's in strong contrast to the improprieties that had been being accused of. Paul said that he spoke out of the best motives, uh, realizing that God had put his heart to the test that Paul saw the persecution that he got. He saw the beatings that he got. And if you go through uh, in the New Testament, Paul lines out for us all the things that happened to him in his life. Shipwrecked, beaten with rods, imprisoned, you know, in the dark. I mean, just all these different things that happened to Paul in his life. And we think to ourselves, oh man, what, how great, Paul, you are. Well, he was, but the point is, is that Paul says, guess what? All those things that happened to me, all those things were tests to test my heart. Those were tests to see that in spite of all that that was going on, would I continue to stand firm and to preach the gospel? What a different way of looking at the trials and tribulations in our life today. How often do we think, oh man, the devil's out to get me? How about maybe the Lord's using the devil to try to test you to see if you will stand firm and to continue to walk with God in spite of everything that's going on? How about that? How about not giving the chump the credit and give the glory to God? And understand that God allows things to come in our life because he knows exactly what needs to be tested in our life. And he uses the jump to accomplish that. He uses the things of this world. And I believe that oftentimes that God is wanting us to stand firm and we crumble, we are crushed under the weight of trial and tribulation and we give up. When God says, no, I want you to remain strong. He says, I've entrusted to you this wonderful, glorious gospel, the good news for the world that says that you don't have to die and go to hell, that you can have eternal life and live forever with God. He said, I've entrusted that to you. And what a privilege it is to be entrusted with that gospel. And we should not take it lightly. Nor should we think that it's only, you know, for the elite. It's only for pastors and leaders that, that they're the ones that, 
you know, that they're entrusted with it. Not me. I'm just, I'm just a person. You are just a person. So am I. That's all I am. And God has given us that same entrusting into our care and into our, into our hands to give to someone else and not to take it lightly. Paul has said here that through those trials and those tests that he became approved of God. I think so it is too with us that we too become approved of God as we stand firm in the Lord in our trials and our tribulations. <clears throat> I know it's not easy. I mean, I'm like you. I go through things as well in my own life. And I always try to make sure that I'm looking up when I am as to what, what is it, Lord, that you want me to learn here? What is it that I need to do in my life? Is there something that needs to be changed? Are you trying to get my attention because you want something of me that I am unwilling to listen to and that you've had to bring this into my life in order to get me to change? I know you find it difficult to believe, but it, I am not changed very easy at all, easily at all. Oftentimes the Lord has to bring things into my life that will bring me to a point to where I will yield to him. In 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, it says, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. And this is an exhortation to you and I. Paul was exhorting the Corinthians with that. <clears throat> that we are to be stewards of the mysteries. That is the gospel of God. And that stewards are required to be faithful. We are required to be faithful. In Galatians 1, 11 and 12, it says, but I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we all have this revelation of Jesus Christ in us and that, that we are to be those good stewards. And then in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he says, For I determined not to do anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Pointing us toward that whole idea that the gospel is for us, that we are trained by it, and that, we are, that the Lord does things in our lives to help us to stand in the times when we need to. In verse 5 it says, For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of, for covetousness. God is witness. So this was a part of the accusation against Paul. And Paul understood that covetousness always has a cloak. You know, you ever notice that about people? We just went and we bought something uh, yesterday. And uh, we thought we were, you know, in an environment that we didn't have anything to worry about. But after we purchased it, they put on the, the strong sales pitch, you know, buy the warranty, buy the warranty. And I didn't realize I was buying a used car. I thought I was buying something else. But they just put that on there, you know, you, know, you need to do this. And I'm, I'm one of those, I'm thinking to myself when people tell me that, is your product that bad? That you anticipate that it's going to fail and you want me to buy an insurance policy so if it does, that you'll give me my money back? It's not doing a lot for me in confidence in your product. You know? 
But my point is this, there's always this little cloak that goes on and they do something to try to get you to, you know, to spend a little bit more money. In case you hadn't figured it out, warranties are the number one money maker for manufacturers. And you notice that if you go somewhere and you buy an electronic good somewhere, when you're checking out, what do they do? Oh, would you like to buy a couple of years? You got one year warranty, would you like to buy a couple of more? Because chances are you'll get rid of that product before that warranty is ever filled and you just gave them money for absolutely nothing. And so it's a cloak of covetousness. It's a cloak in order to try to get you to do something and to convince you that this is what you need. I always want to say, no, just sell me a good product. That's, that's all I want you to do. Don't sell me a product that you know is going to break, which, you know, to, nowadays, that's virtually impossible. They don't sell products that, that really, well, I can't say none, but, you know, most products are, are not built to last. Everything we do now is a throwaway, you know. I come from an old school where, you know, when I used to have old Chevys or old Fords, and you pulled the starter off and you rebuilt the starter. You can't even get parts to rebuild a starter now. It used to be when you needed your radiator rotted out, you'd take it to a radiator shop, and they'd pull the top off, and they'd take rods and run it down through those copper uh, fins, their tubes, and they'd clean out all the junk, they'd put the top back on and everything. Man, radiator just like new. You can't even find a radiator shop to do that anymore. Now it's all, you just buy another radiator. And they got so much junk around the thing that you can't even pull it out yourself. Anyways, I'm getting carried away. <laughs> the, the point is, is that there is this, this cloak of covetousness that surrounds us. And they were accusing Paul of doing that same thing. But Paul says, no. There was no covetousness in my heart, in my life, my ministry. I had nothing but your goodness in mind. And he says, he, Paul says, God is my witness. And we can call on God as our witness as to our motives and our actions as we deal with one another and with people in the world if we are sincere, if we are like Paul, and that we have no other motive other than to see people come to faith in Christ. Verse 6, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Like I said, Paul and his companions were not seeking the praise of any man, but the praise of God. Traveling philosophers and orators were common in that Roman, at this time in the Roman Empire. And they uh, itinerated from place to place, entertaining and seeking a personal following for fame and fortune. And then once they had built everything they could out of everybody, then they would simply leave. They had nothing in common, Paul and his companions had nothing in common with such men at all. Rather than seeking something for themselves, they delighted in giving to others freely. When we might have made demands, he says, as apostles of Christ, 
We see here that Paul was among the Thessalonians to give something to them, not to take something from them. He did not come making demands as an apostle, even though he could. In Jeremiah chapter four, uh, 45, I'm sorry, in verse 5, it says, For we do, uh, and do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. For behold, I will bring adversity on all flesh, says the Lord, but I will give your, give your life to you as a prize in all places wherever you go. Now, in verses 7 through 11, we see here, Paul has told us what he was not. Now he's going to tell us what he was. In verse 7, he says, But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. If you think about that for a little bit, what a great analogy that Paul would use. Uh, there's very few things in this world that I can point to that would say something that was this outstanding example in life of love than the love between a mother and a child. A mother gives of herself constantly. Uh, you know, I watched as we've had young couples in our church uh, have children and uh, you see that look on their face after the child is born. Up until that point, everything's great. Oh, we're pregnant. Oh, we're going to have kids. And then that little rugger pops out. And within two weeks, can we put it back in for a while? We need a break. And you can't. But a mother's love is so great, she's willing to make any sacrifice that's necessary in order to care for that child. Any self-sacrifice that is necessary, she will do. Giving of herself over and over and over again. This is what Paul is saying. He says, like a mother, this is what I did for you. I gave of myself, self-sacrificing, unrelenting, giving over and over and over again because you were like babes to me and I loved you like a mother would love her child and I cared for you and desired nothing but the best for you. He says that's how we were. We were gentle among you. They weren't harsh. They weren't demanding. They were not, you know, difficult. As a matter of fact, they were loving in verse 8, it says, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives because you had become dear to us. <clears throat> I think of this, I think of this phrase in this verse, and I think about the short time in which Paul was there, how quickly his heart was knitted to them. So quickly, within three to four weeks, that he was able to make this statement, so affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. That's how quick that attachment came. I'm sure you've probably had relationships like that in your life, right? I know a man who was my best friend for a number of years, I still consider him a very, very good friend, uh, but, I mean, he was my chum, man. We grew up together and everything else. And, man, it was instant. We just, we hit it off, boom. And we were friends from that point on. And I've got another friend of mine that after becoming a believer, uh, we ended up connecting uh, at a pastor's getaway that uh, some friends of mine were doing. And they had never met each other, but 
boy, within 15 minutes, it's like we'd known each other all our lives as we talked and we shared and our hearts were knitted together. And it still is to this day. In Christ, it's, it's how things work so quickly, how God can meld two hearts and lives together between brothers, between sisters, between husbands and wives, how affectionately they were longing for him. And rather than being greedy, as they had been pointed out in verse 5 that it was, they were delighted to share with the Thessalonians. And they not only gave the message of eternal life, the gospel of God, and imparted it, but also imparted their own innermost being, their, their hearts as well. They gave whatever they had in order to help the beloved Thessalonians. The love of Paul and his companions is evident for genuine love finds expression in giving to people, not only to their spiritual needs, which are primary, but also to their physical needs. It has been said that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Paul gave both his care and his knowledge to the Thessalonians. Something for us, of course, to emulate. Verse 9, for you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Uh, we preach to you the gospel of God. So Paul ministered to his converts by labor and toil on their behalf. He worked night and day so that he would not burden them with his needs. And that phrase, night and day, it doesn't mean that he stayed up 24 hours a day. It meant that he would, more than likely, he would work whenever he was not teaching and whatever opportunities he taught, he would, but then he would fill in those that time frame that he needed in order to support himself. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and verse 8, Paul says, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. So more than likely it was through the making of tents. This was something that Paul did in other places. And uh, we see it in Acts chapter 18, 18, where Paul was a tent maker and he used that in order to be able to support himself at various times. Verse 10, you are witnesses in God also how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. So once again, Paul points out to himself, uh, points to himself as an example. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. This is a worthy goal for any Christian today to live a life that declares how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behave ourselves among others. This is the kind of life that draws others to follow Jesus for himself. You know, you can't have two lives. You can't have the one you live outside of the church and the one inside of the church and that they are starkly different from one another. In other words, I cannot come to church and say, praise the Lord, hallelujah, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Christ, and then go out into the world and, and live like hell. Those two things are contrary. You have to have your witness out there in the world that would match up with the witness within the church. And that's what Paul is saying here. This is what they did, and this is what we are to do. This is the kind of life that we are to live. Are to live. He says here, he said in verse 11, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. First, 
First, he speaks of that nurturing of a mother and how much we loved you and how much we nurtured you. But then he speaks about the relationship of the father to the children. The father is the, is the teacher of the children in the family. It's his responsibility. Now, a husband and wife work together in unison with this, but ultimately God says the man is the one is to, that's to raise the children in the home. And he, they partner together, husband and wife, in order to accomplish that. And Paul gives us here, he says that first of all, like a father, he said, I exhorted you. And this word uh, means to uh, be brought, that he brought them along his, to his side. So when he says exhorting, it's not that he's standing back and pointing a finger and telling them what they're doing wrong. It is that he brings them alongside them in order to instruct them as they're going along in lifestyle and in word. And then he says that he comforted. And that is to encourage uh, someone when they're, they're struggling and having difficulties. It's that, come on, you can do it. Keep going. You know, that at times, I think as Christians, we have a tendency to where we want to judge ourselves in that if we have failed, then we failed and it's time just to fail. When that's not the case, God says, get up and go. God comes alongside us and he brings other believers alongside us to encourage us along the way to keep going, to keep walking. Don't give up. It's that same kind of idea that you see in a marathon when somebody has fallen and he's struggling to come to finish that race and that people go out and grab him and by the arms and they help him to come across the finish line. It's that same idea. He says, that's what we did with you. We comforted you. We encouraged you to go on and to keep going. Don't just, if you fall down, don't stop. Just keep getting up and going again. And then he says, and they charged them, every one of them. And that is by that personal testimony. It's that idea that says that, you know, you know when somebody tells me that, that they uh, have fallen into some particular sin or whatever, I, I try to be very quick to remind them that they're not by themselves. If I haven't experienced that particular one that they have, which I've just about experienced almost every sin there is, but... There's some that I leave out, uh, but the truth is, is that we all fall and we all need to get up. We all need that encouragement and they need to have that testimony. Yes, I have fallen. I, and if I have fallen, I can get up and go. So can you. And we use that to encourage one another. First Corinthians 4.15, it says, for, for though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. So what Paul is saying here, he says, I treated you like fathers. That's that exhortation, that comforting, that charge to continue on. And Paul makes it very clear that there are few in our lives that are like that, that, that we have people that are in our lives that love us in this way. But God is totally the father that can love us in that way, even if we don't have somebody else. But I encourage for men to come together and be, you know, to join together developing relationships because we all need that in our life. Every one of us. Every one of us. Verse 12, he says, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. 
So the appeal to lead lives worthy of God is the highest of all for those who have tasted God's grace in salvation. If we have tasted the grace of God in our lives, then there is this wonderful call that God says, now have a walk that is worthy of that call that is on your life as a believer. Take the time to spend time with the Lord and in his word. Let it transform you and change your life. Don't be satisfied with, with being, you know, you know, so much of the flesh being in control of your life. We all have problems with the flesh, but there's a, there's a distinction between those uh, that, that have the flesh and walk in the flesh and those that have the flesh and can't stand to walk in the flesh. Galatians chapter six, you know, Paul lines it up very clearly and he tells us what it is that it means not to walk in the flesh. He tells us what it is to walk in the flesh and what it's not to walk in the flesh. The opposite of that. And true, it is that, that God has this wonderful call in our life, on our life. And in that, there's a process of sanctification that is taking place. And I've said this so many times, but yet it still bears repeating. And that is that you're in process and you should look more like Jesus by the end of this year than you did at the beginning. Because you should be spending that time in prayer and study and fellowship. And those things are going to be the strengths in your life to help you to walk with Christ and to be the person of God that God has called you to be. There is this great appeal to live lives worthy of the calling. Paul heightened his exhortation by reminding the Thessalonians and us that they and we have been specially called by God, called to enter and be partakers in the kingdom and called to glorify and, to sh and share in God's glory. It's a wonderful privilege that God would choose us for himself. That he would open up our eyes and our heart and that we would respond to that call that God has on us. Not everybody does. There are many who reject the call and the invitation to salvation. If you're here this morning and you have, understand that God has called you to walk circumspectly before him, to walk according to his word, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to hang on to one another, to encourage one another in order to be built up in the faith, to serve the true and living God. Be ready in season and out to tell others of the hope that is in you, the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stand firm in the strength of the Lord and not in the power of your own, your own flesh because you'll never succeed you never succeed. In verse 4 of this chapter, by way of reminder, he says, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, and not as pleasing men, but God who tests the hearts. Let that be our prayer this morning. Remembering Ephesians 2.10, where it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May God bless our hearts today. 
strengthen us for his purposes. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for this day. I praise you for your word, Lord, and I thank you for the Apostle Paul and what he has to share to, to us today. I pray, God, that we would indeed all take this glorious gospel that's been entrusted to us and take it and give it to others. Not to hold it for ourselves, thinking that I've got mine, there's no need for to give it to anyone else, but to know and to realize that we need to be sharing this glorious gift that you have given to us. Lord, we love you, we thank you, we praise you. Help us, Lord, to have the right motives as we serve you, not to be self-centered, but other-centered. Lord, and always looking for an opportunity to be able to share the love of Christ with someone else. Lord, we love you, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. And everyone sound? Amen. Would you all stand, please?